Hello and welcome to a spectacularly special episode of Stardust MQ. My name's Cameron Furlong. My guest today is, to put it simply, the Astronomer Royal of the United Kingdom, Professor Martin Rees. Professor Rees has had an incredibly distinguished career having had such roles as Master of Trinity College, Cambridge until 2012, President of the Royal Society and President of the Royal Astronomical Society in the United Kingdom. He has seen many, many uh, errors of astronomical research come and go. And so I had the brilliant opportunity to sit down and talk to Professor Rees about his career, his work, and his experiences in, in astronomy, as well as his new book, The End of Astronauts. Okay, Professor Martin Rees, thank you very, very much for uh, for coming on on my on my little podcast. Uh, how are you? I'm fine and good to be with you. Fantastic. So I thought I sort of should start uh, with a question that I ask all of my um, all of my guests: is what got you into astronomy in the first place? Well, when I went to university, I studied mathematics, and I realised I wasn't cut out to be a mathematician. There were uh, contemporary students who really had a different mindset. And so I really tried to find a topic where I could use maths, but apply it in a different way, because I discovered I like thinking in a sort of synthetic way, trying to make sense of complicated data. And um, by a chain of accidents, I ended up doing astronomy. And I was very lucky because this was at a time, very long time ago in the 1960s, uh, when uh, the sun was opening up the first evidence of the Big Bang, the black holes, and all that. So uh, I was quite lucky, um, but I came in via maths and picked up the physics that I went along. And what was the first project you were involved with uh, in those early days? Well, the first project was really um, trying to understand what we now call quasars. Um, it was uh, uh, discovered that there were um, some galaxies which had uh, in their center something putting out more light than all the stars in the galaxy added together. And people didn't then know what it was. We now uh, believe it was connected with a huge black hole. Um, but I tried to think about the radiation processes that could give rise to that. And um, that's what my PhD thesis was about. And um, what was that experience like studying quasars? Um, well, I mean, I was very lucky because I did my PhD in Cambridge. And um, this was a time when there was one really charismatic advisor called Dennis Sharma who had um, a, a series of, uh, of students and uh, two years ahead of me was someone you probably heard of called Stephen Hawking. And um, th th then there were other um, students. So it was a very lively atmosphere that we were in and uh, a lot was happening. And so after your PhD, what was the next thing that you moved on to? Um, well, I decided to try and make a career in astronomy astrophysics. Um, and um, I found that the thing I liked doing best was to try and make sense of uh, um, phenomena using the physics that we understand. Um, and so I worked on um, uh, quasars, um, cosmic radio sources, um, and also on uh, um, the Big Bang and uh, how galaxies form and projects like that. And um, in my later career, I've tried to work on things like gamma ray bursts and of course, more recently, to quote an Australian discovery, the fast radio bursts. Yeah, well, I've had a, I've had a couple of conversations uh, with some astronomers about fast radio bursts. What in, what intrigues you about those fast radio bursts? Well, I mean, I think they exemplify one of the reasons we do astronomy, which is uh, um, not just to explore what's out there, but to study 
extremes of physics where nature's done experiments we could never do in the lab. Um, and uh, uh, fast radio bursts where you get uh, an immense burst lasting only a microsecond in some cases, uh, they are uh, telling us something. But um, uh, I think uh, um, there's now widespread view that most of them are what's called magnetars. There are um, neutron stars which have even stronger magnetic fields than the average neutron star, which gives a pulsar. And um, uh, there are maybe um, uh, huge magnetic flares or huge star quakes on the surface, which uh, produce sudden disturbances. Um, and these massive flares um, give rise in ways we can understand uh, to uh, radio flashes. Um, what has been your favorite project to work on in your career so far? Um, uh, well, I mean, I've been lucky. <clears throat> I've enjoyed it all, but I've um, uh, tended to work in collaboration. It's not just because the other guy does most of the work, but because one does have someone with whom one can discuss the details of a problem, um, which no one else would be interested in. And so I, I worked, uh, luckily, with a lot of uh, collaborators. Um, and um, if I look back on my career, I, I think uh, I've covered a wider range than most people did. Um, so I get invited to conferences on various different fields of astronomy. And um, I've really enjoyed that. Um, and to be participating in debates, which have overall led to progress. I wouldn't identify all that much I've done individually, but it's clear that there are lots of topics where we were puzzled about things um, many years ago and they've been settled. But of course, as we settle old problems, then new ones come into focus. It couldn't even have been posed before that. That's certainly been true in cosmology, for instance. Um, when I started, um, the idea of there being a big bang was still controversial, whereas now we can talk with great confidence about what physical conditions were like right back to when the entire universe, or the entire observable universe, was squeezed to the size of our solar system and the expansion would be going on for a nanosecond. And that's huge progress. But of course, that raises the question, what happened in that first nanosecond, which is when many of the key features were pinned down. So that's just one example of how uh, things um, uh, develop. Um, and, uh, uh, and I'd like to add, if there are any students who are uh, listening to us, um, uh, the important thing is to go into a subject where new things are happening, new observations, new theories, etc. Because then, or new techniques, because then you can do problems which the old guys never had a chance to do. If you go into a stagnant subject, then you'll be trying to tackle the subjects that they got stuck on. And unless you're cleverer than the earlier generation, you won't make any progress. So the thing is to pick a subject where there are new techniques or uh, new observations, new instruments. And uh, that's been true in most of astronomy over the last 50 years, because um, in the early days, it was neutron stars, black holes and the Big Bang. Um, the most exciting topic recently has been exoplanets, the realization that most stars in the sky have um, planets orbiting them, just like the uh, sun has the Earth and the other familiar planets. And so that's an exciting topic. So it's a great topic to go into. And let me just mention this one uh, thing that has changed the subject in the last 20 years. And that's the possibility to do very realistic computer simulations. Um, 
Of course, in astronomy, we are handicapped. We can't do experiments on our objects in space. We can't crash stars and galaxies together. Uh, but in our virtual world of the computer, we can do this. And uh, our understanding of um, uh, how stars explode and um, uh, how galaxies evolve has been very much um, deepened by the ability to do simulations where you can um, study these things immensely speed it up, of course, and put in what you think is the relevant physics and, uh, and see which assumptions lead to an output that most resembles what you actually see in the sky. Now, just on uh, on the on the topic of the changeability of of this uh, of this field, what has been the most surprising development in that you've seen in your career? Well, I think going back to the beginning, it was the realization that it's not just stars in the universe that shine; it's uh, all these other things. And this was made possible, of course, by the uh, um, opening up of um, astronomy and other wave bands, um, not just optical uh, radio on the ground, but of course. Uh, space observations, which of course give you sharper pictures in the visible light, but also um, allow one to observe x-rays and gamma rays and far infrared, etc., uh, which you can't do from the ground. So we've got a much more complete picture of the sky observationally through those those techniques. Like the uh, like the James Webb Space Telescope, which seems to have been in development since before you even started in astronomy. <laughs> it was, it was <laughs> well, in, in, indeed, I mean, it's been a long saga, but um, but um, uh, it's it's amazing that this didn't already uh, have problems because the really hairy bit was to uh, um, un unfold the, the sun shield and the mirrors, you know, which had to be uh, squeezed inside the nose kind of the rocket. Um, and that was um, done with uh, a great success. And, and that was a huge technical achievement. And, uh, and incidentally, they used up less fuel than they feared they would need to use in correcting the orbit and things like that. And that means that its lifetime may be twice as long as people thought before they run out of the fuel, which is obviously needed to make small corrections in its pointing and all that. Uh, so it started off very well indeed. Um, and um, there's one upside of the delay, and that's that when it was being talked about until 10 years ago, it was thought that the main thing it would do was to um, look back in the past and see very distant galaxies um, where the light was shifted in the infrared, which the James Webb telescope was optimized to detect and uh, understand the early stages of galaxy formation. That still is important. Um, and at least half its time would be spent on probing very, very distant galaxies, seeing them when they were very young. But um, the subject of exoplanets was really burgeoned in those last 10 years. And uh, equally exciting to me will be the possibility that it will be able to collect enough light or infrared radiation from Earth-like planets orbiting other stars to be able to take a crude spectrum of that light and see if there's any vegetation. Because if the planet is covered in plants uh, or covered in water, uh, then of course, those would have distinctive uh, spectral features. And it's possible that uh, the James Webb, for the first time, the sensitivity to uh, make those sorts of crude spectral observations. Um, if it doesn't, uh, then the next opportunity will come uh, when the um, uh, European telescope in Chile, this is the um, so-called 
extremely large telescope. The Europeans aren't very imaginative in their nomenclature, but this is indeed extremely large. It's got um, a mirror which is 39 meters across, not just one sheet of glass, but a mosaic of uh, about 800 sheets of glass. Um, but that uh, will, of course, collect a lot of light, and that will also um, be able to um, observe um, in visible light, not infrared, um, some of these um, planets around other stars. And of course, everyone asks, is there likely to be life on, on these other planets? Um, and I think we just don't know, uh, but it's one of the most important questions. And um, uh, although um, it's not known, um, it's um, a question which as astronomers, one is most often asked, is there life out there? Are we alone and all that? And we can start to address those questions. Um, and uh, I think that's very exciting. Uh, I think, um, What's very important about it is that um, we don't understand how life began on Earth. We understand how simple life evolved by Darwinian selection over three and a half or so billion years into the complex cosmos, the complex biosphere uh, around us and which we are part of. But the transition from um, complex chemicals to the first metabolizing, reproducing entities we call alive, that's still not understood. And we don't therefore know whether it's such a rare fluke that it maybe only happened here on Earth, or whether it's something that would have happened on any planet with an environment like the young Earth. In the latter case, there would be probably a billion places where life exists in our galaxy. It's all a question of uh, it's all a question of mathematics, isn't it? Statistical statistically, there should be another one, right? Uh, well, we, we don't know the probability. It could be so rare that. Uh, that's really the only one. Uh, on, on the other hand, um, it's, most people would bet it's not like that. It's a lot. But of course, even when you've got simple life, um, then um, uh, there are various other hurdles before it evolved into uh, intelligent life. And so uh, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, so-called SETI program, is worthwhile. And there's some being done at parks in Australia. Um, and um, I'm involved in some advisory boards for that sort of thing, which is very worthwhile, but I'm not holding my breath for success because uh, um, they're looking for some kind of transmission that can't be understood naturally. Um, but um, uh, good, they're looking, but um, they may not succeed. And of course, even if there is um, intelligence out there, then we've no idea whether it's uh, sending out radio transmissions or just thinking deep thoughts and not communicating. It's like, yes, we have it, but now what? Right. Mm -hmm. um, now, just on the subject of the future, uh, you have a new book that's just come out talking about the future of space exploration. You make the claim that um, that future space exploration won't be done by humans, but by robots. And that's, to some, might be a bit of a, a controversial claim, I suppose. Mm -hmm. What uh, what what um, what what drove you to uh, to talk about and investigate this this uh, this topic? Um, well, I mean, I think um, obviously it's a fascinating question. Um, how do we explore um, our solar system um, and, of course, in a very far future beyond um, by actually sending probes or going there rather than just by looking through telescopes? And, um, and of course, um, uh, we know that humans have been to the moon and lots of them are going in low Earth orbit in a space station. And there's always talk about uh, will they go to Mars or even beyond? And uh, the point we make is that um, uh, the peak of human spaceflight 
was the Apollo moon landings, which are now 50 years ago. Um, they were, uh, of course, bankrolled hugely expensively by the Americans. 4% of the American federal budget at its peak was spent on uh, the Apollo program. And it was done, of course, for political reasons to beat the Russians. And um, I'm old enough to remember um, when uh, Neil Armstrong, and that was only 12 years after the first Sputnik, the first thing that went into orbit at all. And I think many of us then expected that uh, long before today, there would have been footprints on Mars. And there perhaps would have been if the uh, expenditure had been maintained, but there was no motive having beaten the Russians to the moon to go on. And so NASA's expenditure now is about half of a percent of the uh, uh, American federal budget. But the most important change in the last 50 years, of course, has been the um, development of robotics and AI, um, which uh, um, obviously are getting more sophisticated um, and uh, are far cheaper to, to launch and um, will soon have enough intelligence to be able to carry out research program. I mean, let me give an example that um, there have been various probes, as you know, sent to Mars. The uh, Americans sent a probe called Curiosity about 10 years ago which trundled very, very slowly across a Martian crater, moved very slowly because it encountered a rock in its path. It had to report back to base on Earth, as it were, to decide how to change course and to send a signal um, from Mars to Earth and back again takes at least 10 minutes, depending on the orbital parameters. Um, and so it moved very slowly. There's a later probe that landed last year called Perseverance. And that's got enough intelligence that if it encounters a rock, it can figure out for itself. Now, that's a first step. But 10 or 20 years from now, one can imagine that the um, uh, probes that are sent to Mars will have enough AI to be able to do a bit of geology and decide which is a specially interesting location, where should they take their samples, etc. And of course, um, sending a robot to Mars is hundreds of times cheaper than sending humans, especially if you want to bring the humans back, because you've got to feed them for 200 days on a journey, and you've got to take all the equipment needed, the return journey and the uh, rocket to take off for Mars and all that. So it's hugely more expensive. And moreover, of course, um, it's not much more difficult to send a robotic probe to one of the moons of Jupiter, which are further away and are um, also interesting because they are possible locations for some kind of life. That can be done, whereas the idea of humans going that far um, is, everyone would agree, rather unrealistic. And so um, our line is that if I was an American taxpayer, and I say my co-author is uh, Don Goldsmith, who is an American, um, we wouldn't want to spend any taxpayer's money on human spaceflight, um, because it is hugely expensive, especially if you're risk averse. And uh, of course, if you are sending civilians for public support, you've got to make it as safe as possible. And the American Space Shuttle was launched 135 times, and it failed just twice. That's less than a 2% failure rate. But each of those failures was a big national trauma because they presented it as safe routine tourism. They sent up a woman school teacher and all that. So this is a big trauma. Uh, so our line is that um, that sort of spaceflight is too expensive. And there's no purpose in it, really. The robots can do things better. Um, but we should cheer on these um, billionaires if they want to spend their money or get sponsorship to send people into space. 
There are two reasons for that. The one reason, obviously, is that's not public money. But the second reason is that um, they can afford to take higher risks and do a cut price riskier project than a government could impose on, on, on civilians. And uh, there are, of course, lots of people who will be prepared to um, accept a much higher risk of 10% or so um, for, for a thrill-seeking trip into space. And so um, we hope that there will be private ventures into space and perhaps even to Mars. There are many people who go with a one-way trip. In fact, Elon Musk himself has said that he would like to die on Mars, but not on impact. And he might manage that. Uh, he's 50 years old now. So in 40 years time, when he's 90, what a way to go. And so maybe he will go. Um, <laughs> but although we think that there will be um, a colony of people on Mars, um, extreme thrill seekers, the kind of people who go to the South Pole, etc. Um, we don't think that there will be mass migration to Mars. And here um, uh, we strongly disagree with Elon Musk and with my late colleague Stephen Hawking, um, who talked about mass emigration to Mars to avoid the Earth's problems. We think that's a dangerous delusion because we've got to solve Earth's problems here. Uh, dealing with climate change is tough, but it's a doddle compared to terraforming Mars. There's no planet B for ordinary risk averse people. Space is something for adventurers. But um, we also discuss in our book the upside of having um, these um, pioneers on Mars. And that's the following that um, they will clearly be ill adapted to Mars, um, the wrong atmosphere, the wrong gravity, etc. And they will want to use all the technology of um, genetic modification and cyborg technology and all that in order to adapt themselves or their descendants to this hostile environment. Now, those techniques will, we hope, be uh, regulated here on Earth for ethical reasons and prudential reasons. But these guys are away from the regulators and they've got a stronger motive to adapt. And so um, if there are some people who are on Mars and never come back, then they will be the precursors of a post-human species, which they will, um, they will evolve into something better adapted to them. And of course, will that be flesh and blood or will they um, download into electronic entities? We don't know. In the latter case, um, they will be near immortal and uh, the electronic intelligences wouldn't want to be on a planet at all. They would need an atmosphere. They might prefer zero G. And uh, if they're immortal, they wouldn't be daunted by an interstellar voyage. So that could be the beginning of um, uh, expansion of um, our remote descendants beyond the solar system. And that's a very long-term prospect. But uh, um, our point is that that could be pioneered by uh, these uh, crazy adventurers who go to Mars, because they will have every incentive um, and freedom for regulators to make these changes. And um, these changes would be about a thousand times faster than Darwinian changes, because Darwinian evolution is, of course, changing things, but it takes hundreds of thousands of years um, to um, uh, give rise to a different mam mammalian species, typically. And so our changes would be very slow. We're, we're not very different from uh, 
people 50,000 years ago, uh, whereas this could happen on a sort of technological timescale of, of centuries or less. So um, this far future um, evolution could be quick. And this, that leads to another point, uh, which um, uh, I try to make as an astronomer, because I think it's the context where astronomers bring a special perspective to bear. I mean, most uh, people are now um, aware of um, the fact that we are the outcome of uh, uh, three and a half or four billion years of evolution in the first protozoa. Most people, I suspect, think of us as the culmination of evolution, the top of the tree. And no astronomer can believe that. It's one thing we know as astronomers is that the future lying ahead is longer than the past. The sun's been shining for four and a half billion years since the Earth first formed, but it'll be about six billion more years before the sun flares up and dies. And the expanding universe may go on far longer, maybe forever. I like to quote Woody Allen, who says, eternity is very long, especially towards the end. And so uh, we should think of ourselves as maybe not even a halfway stage in the emergence of wonderful complexity and intelligence um, in the universe. And if evolution gets started elsewhere, it won't proceed exactly in synchrony. That means that if there were any aliens out in space, um, who we might eventually find evidence for, in terms of aliens, um, they're most unlikely to be like us or flesh and blood. They're far more likely to be some electronic entities, which are the descendants of some flesh and blood civilization that died out long ago on some other planet. And so um, we've no idea what to look for, but uh, there could be a huge variety of uh, entities out there, uh, which are in some senses more advanced than human brains um, and uh, may have a deep understanding um, of phenomena that we can not even become aware of. Well, yeah, I, I suppose we, we we would, if I may make a Star Trek reference, less uh, less Vulcan, more Borg with what we can expect out in the stars. <laughs> right. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that's a really great, good place to end it. Oh, uh, one question. Where can uh, where can everyone find uh, find this new book of yours? What's it called? It's, it's called um, The End of Astronauts, um, and it's being published, well, on April the 1st in Britain, April the 20th in the United States, um, I don't know how long it takes to percolate to Australia, but uh, I hope that uh, people are interested in the book. It's by Don Goldsmith and Martin Rees. And uh, uh, it's a general book, which I hope people will find interesting and stimulating. And it discusses um, ideas on space colonization and things of that kind as well. And uh, about what could happen on the moon. Uh, could robotic fabricators build structures on the moon without humans? Uh, what about the asteroids and all that? So I think people will find it interesting and uh, it's intended for general readers, not for specialists. Professor Martin Rees, again, thank you very much. Appreciate it. Had a great time. Stardust MQ is a podcast made with the support of the Macquarie University Department of Physics and Astronomy and the Macquarie University Physics and Astronomy Society. Thanks to Oliver Doherty for editing this episode. Our intro music is by Poddington Bear and our outro theme is from Ketsa. I'll talk to you next time.